Greetings and good morning to all the good students who normally meet with me on Thursday mornings at St. Joan of Arc in Glendale. I miss you, but for the time being, this is the only way that I can continue teaching you the Gospel of John. And so, here we are, in week four of the spring quarter already. Now, before we return to John chapter 10, as we always do, let's pause for a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for bringing us together online to read and to study your word. Please open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say, that in better understanding you, we may come to love you more deeply. God our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light. Pour out the Holy Spirit he promised us to sow truth in our hearts and awaken in us obedience to the faith. May we all be born again to new life and enter the fellowship of your one holy people. And grant this through the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, before I begin this morning, let's pause and consider our options for the month of May. We're waiting to see how the easing will take place and uh, life return to normal. It will first happen in our parish communities, maybe at daily mass. And once that's settled, I'll make inquiry to find out when we can meet again in the parish hall. Again, with the space available, we would be able to distance ourselves appropriately, but we'll see how it plays itself out. I'm committed to these online lectures throughout the month of May, if necessary, and then hoping perhaps that we can come together in the summer for our summer series. I'm working on it now. It's going to be entitled A Month with Moses. But having said that, we'll see how things sort themselves out over the next couple of weeks. I invite you to return with me to the Gospel of John. This morning I'll be looking at chapters 10 and 11, and we might even get our finger into chapter 12 as well. Jesus has, in chapter 10, just restored the sight of a man who was born blind. Remember, a paste was made and placed on his eyes on a Sabbath day. He was told to go to the pool of Siloam and wash, and when he did, his sight was restored. And chapter 9 comes to a conclusion in verse 40 and 41 with some religious leaders, Pharisees, who would be of the same religious party of Jesus, the holiness at home party that Judaism grows and continues and is sustained around the family table and then sort of trickles up to the temple. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard what he said to the blind man who had his sight restored and said to him in verse 40 of John chapter 9, Surely we are not also blind. You're not suggesting that we are symbolically blind, are you? And Jesus responded, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you are saying we see, so your sin remains. That's Jesus' way of saying, yes, gentlemen, you are, in fact, blind. And Jesus is teaching 
in the midst of the Temple Mount. So these religious leaders, these Pharisees and others, don't go anywhere, and Jesus will continue to address them as he addresses his disciples in John chapter 10. Jesus turns to those sympathetic to his teaching style, his disciples, his students, and says, Amen, Amen, I say to you, whoever does not enter a sheepfold through the gate, but climbs over elsewhere, is a thief and a robber. But whoever enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the paddock for him, and the sheep hear his voice, and as he calls his own sheep by name, he leads them out. And when he has driven out all his own, he walks ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they recognize his voice. They will not follow a stranger. They will run away from him because they do not recognize the voice of strangers. And although Jesus used this figure of speech, they, meaning the religious leaders who are leaning in, listening, did not realize what he was trying to tell them. Well, what do we know about the practice of shepherding 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, which continues in traditional Middle Eastern cultures to this day? In point of fact, smaller flocks of animals, sheep, whole, and entire, are brought together collectively. 10 here, 20 there, 30 from another group, and are put in a temporary enclosure overnight. That enclosure is sealed off by a temporary barrier, and then that will allow the shepherd to go home and spend the evening with his family. The sheep are safe at night from predation because any predator that came upon sheep in a fold like this would see just one gigantically large sheep as they're all closely compacted together and would refrain from attack. Now, in this particular situation, a thief or a robber, a human being, could come in and try to steal a sheep or two as that opportunity presented itself. But if they came at night, they would always be recognized as thieves and robbers. In the morning, the person who had been responsible for watching over the sheep at night breaks open the barrier and the shepherds arrive. Each shepherd calls out their individual animals by name, most typically by whistles or musical intonation that their sheep have been accustomed to listen to. I've witnessed this myself, and those animals remove themselves from the larger flock, 10 at a time, 15 at a time, 20 at a time, and they follow the voice of the shepherd. And then once out of the main flock, the shepherd then leads them away for the day's pasturing and watering uh, and all the things that a shepherd needs to do for the flock. No other sheep will follow that particular shepherd. And no one ever challenges that shepherd saying, hey, one of my sheep has responded to your voice. That's just not possible. And that's the image that Jesus is invoking when he says in chapter 10 that uh, whoever enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. And Jesus is saying, I am the good shepherd. 
Now, because there was some confusion about what Jesus was trying to say, Jesus again, in verse 7, said, Amen, amen, I say to you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and slaughter and destroy. I came so that they might have life and have it more abundantly, because I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, meaning the good shepherd risks his life for his sheep. If one of them goes missing, he searches until he finds the lost animal. He writes that animal that has become cast down and at great peril to himself from local predators. He waits patiently until that animal is ambulatory again. Remember Luke chapter 15, who among you, having a hundred sheep, loses one and doesn't go out in search for the lost? Well, the answer was no one would do that because that animal lost itself. The shepherd didn't lose it. The sheep lost the shepherd. And to look for it is life-threatening. When Jesus says he is the good shepherd, he means that I'm willing to risk my life. I'll lay down my life for any individual member of the flock. In verse 12, a hired man who is not a shepherd and whose sheep are not his own, why, he sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away. And the wolf then catches and scatters them, or scatters them, and then catches the weak animals of the flock. This is because he, that is, the hired man, works for pay and has no concern for the sheep. But I am the good sheep, not the good shepherd. And I know mine, and mine know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I will lay down my life for the sheep. Now I have, Jesus continues to say, other sheep that do not belong to this particular fold. And by that, he means Gentiles who will eventually be part of the flock. These also I must lead and they will hear my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. This is why the father loves me because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. And we'll remember that from the Passion narrative, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and see it again in the Gospel of John. Jesus is in control, complete control, of laying down his life purposefully. This is not an accident, something that's gone horribly wrong. Jesus will actually self-incriminate to make sure that he will breathe his last at the moment that the sacrificial offering first is offered at three in the afternoon on that good Friday. No one, in verse 18, takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the power to lay it down and the power to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. Now, as he said this, again, there was a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, that proves that he's possessed and out of his mind. Why do we even listen to him? But others said, these are not the words of a possessed man. Surely a demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Why would he? Demons 
are trying to blind you and trying to make you deaf so you can't see and so you can't hear. And yet he's restored the ability of others to hear. And he's restored the sight of a man who was born blind. Well, we remember that Jesus is in Jerusalem at this time of the year to celebrate the Feast of the Dedication. We call that Hanukkah. He's there in December. And as the Feast of the Dedication was then taking place in Jerusalem, and it was December, it was winter. And Jesus, in verse 23, walked about in the temple area on the portico of Solomon. So all the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Like, for instance, Barabbas had. Remember Barabbas, whose life will be offered in exchange for the life of Jesus, was a false messiah. And he announced himself as messiah by proclaiming himself and naming himself Barabbas. His name in Hebrew, Bar, the son of, Abba, the father. That's not a name given him at birth. It's a title that he's claimed for himself. So if you are the messiah, in verse 24, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you don't believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify to me that I am the Messiah. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You're not part of the fold. You don't recognize my voice. You're not going to respond to my summons. My sheep, my disciples, hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can take them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one can take them out of the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. Now again, that is a bold declarative statement of co-divinity with the Father. It's not a claim that he is the Messiah. It's much broader and bolder than that. He is saying that the Father and I are one. I am divine. And that explains why the Jews, who hear him say that in verse 31, again picked up stones intending to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from my Father. For which of these are you trying to stone me again? The Jews answered him, We are not stoning you for a good work, but for blasphemy. You, a man, are making yourself out to be God. And Jesus answered them, Well, is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods? If in the law it calls them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, can you say that the one whom the Father has consecrated and sent into the world blasphemes because I said, I am the Son of God? Now in verse 35, that particular reference, if it calls them gods to whom the word of God came, references the fact that they belong to God. That is, they are God's children. Here, after announcing that, Jesus says, I am the Son of God. And in verse 37, if I do not perform my Father's works, fine, then do not believe me. But if I perform them, even if you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may realize and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. 
Well, they tried to arrest him again, but he escaped from their power. He went back across the Jordan to the place where John had first baptized, and there he remained. Many came to him there and said, John performed not a single sign, but everything John said about this man was true. And many there began to believe in him. Now Jesus has exited Jerusalem, and he's now on the eastern side of the Jordan River. He's put the uh, boundary of the Jordan River between himself and possible adversaries. And those who know and love him know where he is. To get from the Temple Mount to this particular geographic location, he has to pass through the village of Bethany, where his best friends, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, reside. Keep that in the back of your mind. It's been a couple of days since he's passed through Bethany as chapter 11 opens. There was a man ill in Bethany. His name, Lazarus. Bethany's the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Lazarus, of course, their brother. Mary, in verse 2, was the one who had anointed the Lord with perfumed oil and dried his feet with her hair. That actually happens in John chapter 12, verses 1 to 5, as you will see. It was her brother, Lazarus, who was ill. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, saying, Master, the one you love is ill. Now, it would take the better part of a day for any messenger to make their way from Bethany all the way to the site across the Jordan River to find Jesus. And the illness must have been severe enough to have motivation through the sisters to send message to Jesus. When Jesus heard this, he said, His illness will not end in death, but is rather for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, Mary and Lazarus. So, when he heard that he was ill, he remained for two days in the place where he was. Jesus knew that Lazarus was going to die, and Jesus knew that he would be given the gift of his father to be able to call him back from the grave. And even though he loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, it was more important that this sign be revealed about his divinity, that he could call a man back from the grave. So after all of this, he then, two days later, said to his disciples, it's time to go back to Judea. The disciples, his students, said to him, Rabbi, the last time we were there, the Jews were trying to stone you, and now you want to go back? And he answered them, saying, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If one walks during the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks at night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. Now, he said this, and then told them, Our friend Lazarus is asleep, but I need to go to awaken him. Well, they knew that Lazarus was ill. The messenger from Bethany had confirmed that. And hearing that he was asleep, the disciples said to him, Master, if he's sleeping, he will be saved. He's resting, and so he is more than likely on the mend. John reminds us, though, in verse 13, but Jesus was talking about his death. Well, they thought that he meant ordinary sleep. So Jesus said to them quite clearly, Lazarus 
has died. And I am glad for you that I was not there, that you may believe. Let us go to him. It was Thomas, who's also called Didymus, which means the twin of somebody, who said to his fellow disciples, let us also go to die with him. If he's going, I'm going. I'm not going to live in fear. And if he's going to die, I'll die with him. Keep that in your mind, because Thomas is often uh, sort of categorized as a doubter, and he's actually the opposite. He's a man of real and true faith. Now, they make the journey back to Bethany, which would take the better part of an entire day. And when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. So if he'd been in the tomb for four days and they had traveled one day to arrive, had waited two days before they departed, Jesus knew that as soon as the messenger had left Bethany, Lazarus died. There was no reason to hurry back. The symbol, the sign that would be revealed in calling him back from the grave after four days was much more important. It was too late in that sense for Lazarus. Now the Lord will use him to bring others to faith. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, verse 18, only about two miles away. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary, sitting in Sheba for seven days after the departure of a loved one, after the death of a loved one. They were there to comfort them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. Mary sat at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, Martha, your brother will rise. And she said to him, I know he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus told her, I am that resurrection and I am that life. Whoever believes in me, even if he won, dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, of course, Lord. I have come to believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You're the one who we've been waiting for, and now you've come into the world. Now, when she said this, she then went and called her sister Mary secretly, saying, Rabbi is here and is asking for you. As soon as she heard this, Mary rose quickly and went to him. For Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still where Martha had met him. So when the Jews who were with her, sitting in Sheba seven days in mourning, remembering the life of the departed, when the Jews who were with her in her house, comforting her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out, they followed her, presuming that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, they would be distraught at this point because the tomb would have been sealed. Remember, the tombs have two chambers, an entry chamber called the weeping chamber, where you can enter and weep and wail and bemoan the loss of your loved one who is placed on a niche deeper inside the tomb. But after three days, that tomb is sealed to keep the smells of decomposition at bay. And so they're probably concerned that Mary is beside herself with grief and doesn't understand the delicacy of the situation. That if she's going to the tomb to weep, she will find the stone rolled over the entrance and will wail and moan in a public display of her 
sorrow. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was, in verse 32, and saw him, why she fell at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you have been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her, professional mourners, also weeping, he became perturbed and deeply troubled himself. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they all said, Sir, come and see. And Jesus himself wept. He wept because he was caught up in the emotion of that moment. Even with the absolute certitude that he was going to call his friend Lazarus back from the tomb, to be around people who are mourning the loss of loved ones and, and weeping and wailing was overwhelming for our Lord. When this happened, when Jesus wept, the Jews assembled there, see how, said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not the one who opened the eyes of the blind man in John chapter 9 have done something so that this man would not have died? So Jesus, upset again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay across it because we had passed that three-day barrier. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the dead man's sister, ever the pragmatist, said to him, Lord, by now there will be a horrible stench. He has been dead for four days. But Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so, obeying his directive, they took away the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes in prayer and said, Father, I thank you for hearing me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd here, I have said this, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man came out. He was tied hand and foot with burial bands, and his face was wrapped in a cloth. So Jesus said to him, or to them, untie him and let him go. Effectively, unwind him and, and remove the bonds of the burial treatments from his body. Now, many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen what he had done began to believe in him for obvious reasons. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened, in verse 47, as a Sanhedrin, and said, What are we going to do? This man is performing many signs. The man born blind has his sight restored. This fellow Lazarus has been called back from the grave. If we leave him alone, all will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our land and our nation. We will lose everything. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, he was the son-in-law of the true high priest, Annas, who had been deposed by the Romans. Uh, that's why he was currently in that position. Remember, the high priesthood office was bestowed on a person after the current high priest dies. This is an anomaly in that particular situation. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing, nor do you consider that it is better for you that one man should die instead of the people so that the whole nation may not perish. We've been trying to take Jesus out, but have not been successful yet. John reminds us he did not say this on his own, but since he was high priest for that year, 
In this way, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the dispersed children of God. Remember the members of other flocks that Jesus is going to call to himself from John chapter 10. And so from that day on, they doubled down in their plan to kill him. So that Jesus could no longer walk about in public among the Jews. But he left for the region near the desert, to a town called Ephraim, and there he remained with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jewish people was near, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before Passover to purify themselves. And again, you would do that by ritually immersing yourself in the mikvah. A mikvah is a ritual bath, or in the coursing waters of the Jordan. This is what John facilitated people with when he was present at his baptismal site. So, with that in mind, they were going to purify themselves, and they looked for Jesus and said to one another, ah, as they were in the temple area, what do you think? That he will come to the feast? For the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should inform them so that they might arrest him. So Jesus is present now in Ephraim, and Passover is near. The game is almost afoot. Now in chapter 12, as I mentioned, we'll get started before concluding at verse 11 with the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. We have a historical time marker. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where, and this is important, Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And there, six days before the Passover, this is the evening before Palm Sunday, they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, while Lazarus was one of those reclining at table with him. Wouldn't you want to be seated as close to Lazarus as possible to hear his tale and description of what life was like on the other side of the grave. And during the meal, Mary, his sister, took a liter, a healthy portion of a most costly perfumed oil made from genuine aromatic nard and anointed the feet of Jesus, anointed the head of Jesus, and then having anointed the feet, dried them with her hair. And John remembers that the house in Bethany was filled with the fragrance of that oil. It was Judas the Iscariot, one of his disciples, and the one who would betray him, who said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 days wages? That's effectively two years worth of employment. And sold, we could then at least give it to the poor. But John reminds us, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and held the money bag and used to steal the contributions. So Jesus said, leave her alone. Let her keep this memory for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. What's going on here? Well, it's clearer in the synoptic gospels. There's some details in the account of John, which are remarkable that the house was filled with the fragrance of that perfume. But in Mark chapter 14 and verse 9, we have a clearer understanding of what Jesus is trying to convey. 
in Mark chapter 14, we are also preparing for the Passover. In verse 12 of Mark chapter 14, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, meaning the Passover, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples, oh, I'm reading from the wrong place. I want to make sure that I get this. I'm sorry, it's before that. It is in Mark chapter 14, verses 3 and following. When Jesus was in Bethany, Mark chapter 14, verse 3, reclining at table in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of perfumed oil, costly, genuine spikenard. Now, this story is different than the account in John, but there are very similar attributes. In this particular story, Jesus is dining in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, or in the home of Simon, who used to be a leper. A woman comes in, in John's gospel, identified as Mary, with this precious commodity, which was unbelievably valuable, and uses it to anoint Jesus. She broke the alabaster jar and poured it on his head. And again, we read in John's gospel, also on his feet. There were some who were indignant. Among them, noteworthy would be Judas the Iscariot, as we learn in John chapter 12. Why has there been this waste of perfumed oil? It could have been sold for more than 300 days' wages and the money given to the poor. They were infuriated with her. But Jesus said, and we know he says this to Mary, leave her alone. Why do you make trouble for her? She has done a good thing for me. The poor you will always have with you, and whenever you wish you can do good to them, but you will not always have me. And this is the key in verses 8 and 9. She has done what she could. She has anticipated anointing my body for burial. She gets it. She's understood my passion predictions. She knows that tomorrow I enter Jerusalem triumphantly, but by the end of the week, I will die a horrific death. I've predicted this, and I'm going to suffer, and then I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be buried before I conquer the grave. And so she's anointing me in advance. This is an act of faith. Amen. In verse 9, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, to the whole world. What she has done will be told in memory of her. And this is the way Jesus honors Mary. Now, John fleshes out the story, and we learn that it is Mary, that it is Judas Iscariot, who is upset with her wonderful gesture. And I always point out additionally that when she anoints the head of Jesus with this precious perfume and his feet, she doesn't dry them with her hair. Rather, she takes the covering from her head that's hidden her hair, and she uses that as an impromptu towel. Now, in verse 9 of John chapter 12, we come back to our narrative. The large crowd of the Jews found out that he was there and came, that is, to Bethany, not only because of Jesus, and watch this now, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests plotted to kill Lazarus too. 
because many of the Jews were turning away from their teaching and believing in Jesus because of Lazarus and the witness of his testimony of having died, been buried, and called back four days later from the grave. Where had he been? What had it been like? What message could he have delivered? I would love to hear that story, and I know you would too. Now that brings me to a logical point of conclusion this morning. John chapter 12. I'm putting that in my notes. John chapter 12 and verse 11. Next week, we'll begin our journey with Jesus through the passion narrative of the Gospel of John. You'll find it quite engaging. But for now, that's all the teacher has time to do. I will never tire of reminding you what a great student you are. Thank you for listening this morning. God bless and good day.